I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And a special thanks to everybody who has already signed up for the secret show. Uh, We've got some good early subscribers and already had some some good and mixed and and interesting feedback on the episodes on there. But I think think for the most part, you are going to like them uh, if you're not horribly offended by them. If you have not yet signed up for the secret show, you can just you can go to sleerickets.substack.com, sleerickets.substack.com, put your email address in and uh, sign up. If you sign up for the monthly fee, it's five bucks a month. If you sign up for the annual fee, it's half that. It's two fifty a month. And if you are rich, you can sign up for the rich person's fee, which is uh, which is more money. Uh, if you are not able to uh, contribute, or if, if you if money is is a real obstacle for you, then do please write me at sleerickets at gmail.com and we will figure something out. And if it's just not for you at the moment, then please, uh, if you t- take a moment sometime this week and just recommend the regular show to a friend you think might enjoy it or that you might at least enjoy arguing about it with. In any event, I am grateful for all of your support and encouragement. Uh, this week, I, it's a, a kind of a, a short, sweet, quick and dirty episode. I have a really, really extraordinary guest, David Yezzi, who is the, I think now he's now stepped down. He was the longtime editor of the Hopkins Review and before that poetry editor and executive editor of the New Criterion, an accomplished poet and playwright, as well as uh, one of my favorite critics, um, he's written a, a number of really penetrating essays on poetry, one of which I've talked about at length on this show. And he is, I'm, I believe, working on a biography of Anthony Hecht, which should be coming out some one of these days. I don't think he's in, I don't think he's rushing it, but it's <laughs> uh, it is long in the works. He's very prolific and very generous with his time and his. Uh, ideas. I saw him in Baltimore and asked him in person if he would come on the show. And right away, he suggested that we talk about this uh, essay in the Los Angeles Review of Books. It's by Austin Allen. It's about Yoko Ono's poetry. I uh, obviously am familiar with the LA Review of Books and with Austin, but I was completely unfamiliar with Yoko Ono's poetry before now. So uh, David and I disagree a good bit about all of this, but uh, Austin's essay is excellent. It is called My Beautiful Never Nevers, Yoko Ono's Poetry Revisited. It's in the April, well, it's it's on the LA Review of Books uh, online for April 4th, 2022. I don't know what their, their print edition looks like, but I will, of course, have a link in the show notes to that and a number of other things we talk about. It's a good conversation, and we, we end up talking uh, partly about this essay about uh, Yoko Ono's book, Grapefruit, which is a very long <laughs> poetry collection uh, that we both read in preparation for the conversation. And uh, and then we also talk about a little bit more generally about taste and how one maybe what constitutes the difference between one's personal preferences and one's sense of uh, what is good when it comes to poetry. And again, I think we disagree a little bit, but uh, but I think we have a pretty fruitful conversation. Once again, this is David Yezzi, author of the 
just out from Measure Press, More Things in Heaven, New and Selected Poems. I have complicated feelings about all this, but I, I, I wanted to let you, so you you asked or you recommended that we talk about this. So I, I just wanted to let you start with kind of what leapt out at you about this piece. I, I'm a big fan of Austin's um, essays. And so when I you know saw it posted somewhere, I immediately clicked on it and started reading. And, uh, you know, I, it's, I think it's one of, one of the, best pieces uh he's done it has a nice sort of mixture of topicality given the beatles film but also i think a, a very important element of personal essay you know he very much brings his context for grapefruit the yoko ono's book and what it how he came across it and what it continued to mean for him and in doing that i think he really revises convincingly, you know, the figure of Yoko Ono, particularly with regard to, you know, her involvement in those final recording sessions for which she's been sort of vilified for so many years. And also I was sort of convinced by his framing of, of Yoko uh, in terms of her childhood, living through the firebombing of Tokyo, um, her, her, her training in, at university in philosophy and creative writing, you know, studying with Alistair Reed, her connection to Fluxus and John Cage. So I, I think it changed my thinking about Yoko. I felt like I understood her to be quite a serious artist and poet, kind of, he makes the case for Grapefruit, putting her on the map as a, a 60s era poet. And I would say in that vein, though he doesn't mention it in the piece, you know, it reminds me it's very much in the line of somebody like Kenneth Patchett, right? Somebody who was also connected to Cage, who was interested in Dada, who, you know, created painting poems. And uh, so it's not this weird, you know, outlier activity that she's very aware of the artistic climate and her contribution to it. And I, I and I came away thinking like that, first of all, Austin had done that so brilliantly that he was right that, you know, in terms of the Let It Be sessions, that she wasn't just a disruptor or a, an attention seeker by sitting in the, you know, that she was, in a sense, she was the, the best educated of them all, that she was the, she was the poet. And her presence there was to take part in the activity of creating now these, what we think of as sort of immortal songs, right? Yeah, it, 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 it but is. You had, you Sorry, had uh, tell me, tell me what we were thinking. Yeah, I mean, I think it is it is far more than a review, and I think if it were just a review, it would be a much like slighter piece than it is, because it, as you said, it both reframes Yoko Ono as a person and artist overall. I mean, the story of uh, he he tells the story of her. She was sick with a fever and was sitting up and was sort of, for that reason, didn't go downstairs to the bomb shelter the day Tokyo was firebombed. And it's just a terrifying story. And she and her family were basically, you know, they, they survived, but they were, you know, pushing their belongings in a wheelbarrow, trying to, you know, trade them for rice to survive. And it was pretty, it's a pretty harrowing story. And he, you know, he, as you said, he does, 
he he moves through her career. She she did study classical piano for a while and, and classical uh, uh, singing uh, as well before getting involved with Cage and and the Beatles and various you know various other musicians. She was a filmmaker. She did the, the cut piece that he 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 sent at least a record because I think she did it a couple times. But he sent a recording of it and 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 that's the last minute or so of that recording. I think is pretty gripping because it is i mean part it, it partly because it, it puts this it it puts the audience in the position to be a an accomplice or in some cases of, i mean the last guy who comes up and sort of cuts away her bra straps i mean it's it, it, he really seems villainous and she's you know it, it is she does her best as he says not to respond but she's only human and it's very it's a very muted response but it's totally uh, I mean, totally sympathetic. And I, I I do think that my... So I loved Austin's piece. I think he he takes excerpts from Grapefruit and he tells a story too that I think it makes it a much stronger piece than it, than it would have been, again, if it were purely a review. I'll read it because it's, it's relatively short. I mean, it is... It feels pretty deeply like a personal essay, but when I went back and read it, it's it's really he keeps it to really a, a pretty limited section that he tells this personal story. He says, I was technically on spring break. I was in bed. My third year graduate exams were looming. A fascist was in the White House and had been for three years. After a federal probe into the fascist crime ring, his, his attorney general had just preempted the final report by announcing that the fascist was exonerated. He wasn't exonerated, but he was out of danger. There was little left on the planet to do, but, but find out whether democracy or the ice caps would vanish first. I was in bed and I wasn't leaving bed. A day later, I still wasn't. The lamp was still off at 7, 8 p.m. I picked up a book I'd assigned myself, Grapefruit, which I'd remembered from that bookstore visit years before. I had to study it for one of my self-inflicted exam topics, comic literature. I leafed through pages, sat up straight, kept leafing. I read the sentence about anuses and laughed out loud for the first time all spring. He, <laughs> he talks earlier about, you know, she and, and Lennon did a a bed in and he... He, he drops a line about this being the, the you know, the preferred uh, protest of lovers and depressives staying in bed. And and it is, I mean, this partly is a story of him emerging from a pretty severe depression. And this book is is sort of the lever that that helps him out of that. And in that way, I mean, it's it's really quite moving. I, I think that he pulls out, in, he, he holds up in particular, he talks about a couple of poems. But one in particular is called Fly Piece. Most of the book is, we should say, presented in the form of some, you know, they're like instructions for a, a theoretical performance piece. And Fly Piece, the, the whole performance piece is just the word fly. Uh, so that, you know, he gives you instructions to do things. She gives you instructions to do things, some of which are, are more or less possible. And that one is, as he says, it's the shortest poem that's ever genuinely moved him. I, I think the the book he reflects in this piece is quite spare and beautiful. And, and as you said, you know, convincingly moving. Then I read the book, Grapefruit, and I think, I think he presents her i think the poet she seems to be in his in his essay is a far better poet than the poet she is i mean the book is 320 pages long and there are a few moments that are quite lovely and i think as with cut piece there are moments that almost incidentally you know out of them emerge these kind of lovely passages or kind of gripping dramatic moments there's a 
there, you know, toward the end, there's, I think, like a, a genuinely funny little riff on penises that, that comes out of a totally unrelated uh, section. You know, she she does have there, you know, there, I think they're also like a number of the, the theoretical performance pieces end with t- uh, take a tape of your wife combing every day, keep it, bury it with her when she dies, take a tape of your husband combing every day, keep it, play it after he dies. So that, you know, there's a, as he says, there's another piece that says every time you move, uh, send out a death announcement. And every time you die, send out a moving announcement. So, you know, there, there are these sort of these moments where, where the, the, the book sort of transcends the goofy format of the kind of the, the theoretical performance piece. But I think much of it is just scribble. I mean, I think it, it remind it actually reminds me partly because of the, the, the doodles and partly because of the font of Shel Silverstein in some cases. Though Shel Silverstein's great. I mean, Shel Silverstein is a terrific children's poet. And this, I think, I think it's a little bit like the the problem you get with like church, where like it's easy to get a laugh at a poetry reading. And I think she gets laughs in here partly because it's a it's a poetry book or it's a kind of I mean it doesn't I, I would say like you're right, it doesn't at all seem like an outlier to the 60s. And I totally believe she, you know, as he said, she contributed sometimes through her through her presence and sometimes you know, literally through singing to some of the Beatles songs and writing writing lyrics as well, and as well as uh, to her songs with with Lennon afterward after the Beatles. I you know I never had that kind of animosity that I think a lot of people had toward her. I think you know she didn't break up the Beatles. The Beatles broke up the Beatles. But I I also think she's you know she she's a serious person. I totally believe she's smarter than John Lennon. You know, even seeing videos of them together. He, you know, he's a musician. He's a, he's in a band. He does music. She, I think she's a brilliant person. This, I don't think is good poetry though. I think Austin's piece is beautiful and I'm glad he wrote it. And it, and it, as I said, it does a lot more than just talk about this one book. And it's a very convincing personal account of his response to this book. But I don't think the book itself is actually good. I, t- I hear what you're saying, and yeah. I find the book kind of offers a range of of feeling to 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 the reader. So I connect with it in a couple of different ways. I certainly don't get a charge from the book, you know, in the realm of traditional poetry. Like I, mm-hmm. if I put this next to a, a collection by Thomas Hardy, you know, I just it, it's so different that. You know, if I was forced to point to the book of poems, I guess I would say, well, I'm, I'll have to take Thomas Hardy. But, <laughs> uh, but sure. it's but I but it's not a distinction that I want to make. Sure. Um, because what I get from the book sort of touches me, moves me, inspires me, tickles me uh, in the way that reading certain beat poets and, you know, and sort of, I, I don't know what Kenneth Patchen would be, maybe a proto beat poet, but, you know, there's a kind of, there's a kind of energy that is created, not uh, gratuitously out of the air, but out of, I think, I would say a, a conscientious and prolonged uh, study of certain artistic models. It's easy to hear Beckett, I think, in some of these pieces, right? They're like absurdist stage directions, right? Now, Beckett wouldn't have written them exactly this way, but, you know, maybe if he was hanging out, you know, in a Flux's loft, he, he might have. And it has a kind of winning energy and life. I think, for, uh, and for me, that's ultimately the, the test, right? Either, either the work of art is, is alive or it's dead. And most of them are dead, 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 dead. This one, I think, has life. I, w- I wouldn't measure it against 
conventional poems. It doesn't sort of uh, hold up in that context, but for what it is doing and for where it's coming, what it's coming out of and what it seems to be even advancing, you know, in those terms, I think it succeeds in the way that Austin is sort of arguing. But, you know, de Gustavus, I, I, I don't think sure. that I would uh, be able to uh, convince somebody that, that wasn't disposed to, to, to find the fun and the energy and the wit and the, you know, and the, I think the moments of real affect stare at the sun until it's square. Um, you know, maybe that's an absurd throwaway, but maybe that's more disruptive or, or imaginative or playful. Yeah. I don't know. You know? Yeah, there, there are. I mean, there are some moments that, that did genuinely make me laugh. At one point she says, count the words in this book instead of reading them. <laughs> so I mean, yeah, the, right. like, it, it, it is, it is funny and it's not again it's it's certainly not without term it's not you're i think you're right to compare it to beckett i mean partly it's it's so long it's there's so many of these it keeps going right. on and there and the, the hit rate is relatively low as far as like the moments of, of you know real humor she both in this book and maybe in some of her work with with the beatles or with some of these other performance artists in some ways she she seems like one of these sort of figures who's a kind of a catalyst like i don't think it would be fair to call her a muse because she's clearly more than that but you know like i think that austin's essay is a finer piece of writing than anything that appears in her book and you like i was watching last night the the video recording or the film recording of uh, instant karma the uh plastic ono band song great it's like that's a great pop song by the way and it was sort of telling that you see John Lennon is just hammering away at the piano and he's belting out these these lyrics and he's clearly just doing what he was born to do. And Yoko Ono is literally sitting beside him, blindfolded, knitting a sock. And, it, you know, and it, it, it's sort of funny to see, but it does seem, you know, it's like she almost seems like a, what's the, 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 the image that Elliot uses in Tradition of the Individual Talent where he talks about like the piece of, aluminum wire that's like put into the acid to provoke the reaction you know i think like she, she seems like this sort of i think i think you know she is she is probably the the smartest of them and she's she is this sort of both galvanizing and divisive figure and it may be that like she provokes and inspires and cultivates work around her i just think that the you know like just coming at it taking you know taking austin's seriousness seriously you know, this is a book where, like, she, I, you know, I have enormous respect for anybody who takes on English as a second language, but, like, she mismanages the prepositions and the, you know, like, she misuses transitive verbs. And so, like, it, it's not, the English is, it's certainly perfectly lucid, but it's not, you know, I think if we're, if we're reading poetry the way we read poetry, I think, this is almost, it's almost like conceptual poetry. It's like the idea of a poem is in some cases where she's at her best. Yeah, no, I think that's a big part of it. To kind of expand on John Hollander's notion of the metrical contract, if we accept the aesthetic contract that Ono is, is offering in the book, then I think we can get a lot out of it. But if you sort of, if that, if the contract is not, you know, functional, then you're not going to be able to really take much away from it except in felicity. So I, you know, but I, so I guess I'm, I'm, I was willing to go along with it. And, 
And but the one thing I will say, mm-hmm. because I like I like grapefruit. I'm sort of it's sort of delightful, and 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 I think Austin is right. Moving, but one thing I will say that qualifies it slightly is that it's not the work of a poet who spends decades evolving a style over many poems and books and, you know, and offers themselves different formal, uh, you know, challenges um, to kind of break onto new ground and evolve over time. And I don't think there's another book of Yoko Ono poems out there. Or, you I, know, think, no, or, I think this is the one. Yeah. Or instructions or whatever they are. I don't, you yeah. know, we don't even call them poems necessarily. You know, so I guess that's another way in which it's we're not being asked to see them as poems in a in a kind of the continuity of a career that you know this is another this is a project in language that's a corollary to the projects in film that's a corollary to the projects in music and pretty interesting you know for that so i guess i would just disagree with you in that i i just i think what you're saying is you know is is absolutely the takeaway if if you approach the poems from a particular angle, I mean, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't really call them poems, whatever this book is. No, but, just, but, but Austin, I mean, Austin does call them poems. He, you know, he says Yoko Ono's yeah, poetry revisited. So we, you, but know. I, you know, but I'm, so I'm sort of coming, I'm taking it out, you know, it's sort of more in the context, I guess that Austin's essay is, is offering them. Uh, I think what he does well is, you know, make the case that on second look, these aren't just, provocations or ironic uh, squibs that one can draw connections to other work uh, by her, uh, to serious work that she's done as a visual artist or as a musician, and understand that in that context, that there's some real feeling here, that this isn't a throwaway. So I'm, I'm, so I was pleasantly surprised and, and glad to kind of add it, you know, to, to add it as a discovery, um, you know, in, in, the, in the spirit that offer, Austin, uh, or a rediscovery in the spirit that Austin's offering it. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I think that's probably fair. And as you said, yeah, she calls it a book of instruction and drawings that within it, there kind of, there are a number of subsections and, and all of those, all of those uh, titles or categories seem, seem to be in kind of multiple, multiple layers of quotation, quotation marks, uh, that all of it is, is a little bit arch even when it's being serious but i was it did make me think about you know the, austin as you said is a is a is a an extremely well educated and and smart and insightful reader and critic uh and his reviews and essays on poetry are you know been you know are i think outmatched only by his his poems themselves he just published a terrific one by the way um i can't remember where it was but on the tulip on tulip mania i'll, I'll have to share a link to that because that's that's a he's and he's he's so good in verse. Uh, he's even I think even better than he is in prose. But it made me think about you know my own experience. You know I I don't know I I, I can't compete with Austin in in either category. But I do try to you know I've written reviews before and I've, I've written criticism. But I also know that there are you know because of the nature of poetry, a lot of my encounters with poems or with poets is really deeply personal and emotional and and irrational and there are i know 
as with any art form, you know, no matter how much I might think about what makes for good poetry, there are certainly artists I respond to and I don't, and I think like I may be, I may love them even if they're not good. You know, I think like, as you said, there's, there's no accounting for tastes, but I think all, all, you know, any, anyone who loves poetry and maybe even in particular people who, who really think critically about poetry, we all have, I don't think it's fair to call them blind spots, but like maybe soft spots or weaknesses for certain po poets we encounter at certain p times in our lives or that mean something in particular to us. And again, I, you know, I don't, whether or not this is an example of that, it did make me think about that in my own life. And I wondered how you as a critic and poet think about that. Like, what is the, what is the role of these sort of particular you know, sweet spots or soft spots we have for certain poets, whether or not they are ultimately, you know, whether or not like in a vacuum or in a, in a, in a, you know, platonic world, we would evaluate them the way we evaluate others. I think I may have, I, I may uh, come at things differently sure. than maybe I, I used to. I, I think as a younger person, critic, um, you know, I was full of uh, a kind of, you know, arrogance and confidence. And sometimes that would be a little slashing and it could be at mm -hmm. the expense of the piece under review and try, you know, I, I hope I didn't go too far down that road, but I certainly did in the way that young critics do. Sure. Uh, I think Me that, yeah. you know, at that time it meant it was more important to me to, I don't know what the word would be to canonize, to consider what is canonical to consider the greatness of uh, the work of art. And while I do think that that is an important consideration, I think I've sort of now, that's not, that's secondary for me now to apprehending the qualities of the work. And most specifically from the point of the practitioner what I'm always looking for and why I think I wrote reviews to begin with is to really get under the hood and see how artists produce particular effects so that if I liked them and I could use them, I would steal them. Um, yep. Yep. And, you know, not in so many words, but you know what I'm talking about. Oh, totally. So, oh, to uh, totally, totally, totally. Uh, so for me, I think, and maybe it's because I'm, I've not been writing as many reviews in recent years because I've been working on a longer project. You know, I'm, my evaluative uh, muscles have sort of atrophied. And, and I think that, so for me, it's, it's not a conflict to say that I love a poet who may not be widely considered great or even substantial because... I've found something in them that either moves me or uh, that I admire as a practitioner um, and want, you know, to, and feel like, wish that I have had done it, you know what I mean? Or, yeah. uh, oh, yeah. or, or just take it uh, and, and use it, you know, even though it wouldn't have been my own discovery. Of course, those are the things that you most when you're looking back, they don't happen very often. Sometimes it's only a phrase or something in a poem and you, where you feel like you've really broke it. You've made a new sound. 
um, you've somehow created a new uh, effect, um, a new shade of feeling and language, you know, that's when it all seems like it's worthwhile and that you've whatever minuscule, you know, <laughs> bit you've managed to, to contribute that you, that that's original and yours and you, you know, can feel good about that in a way. I, I, I may be more interested in flawed poets because they're more useful. Mm-hmm. Um, as much as I like Wallace Stevens, I, I got to be careful with Wallace. You just get too close to that flame mm-hmm. and you're toast. Um, <laughs> you know, what do you add to Wallace Stevens exactly, right? What are you going to take? You know, and yet, if you read enough of it, those rhythms and those, that music will get in there. Uh, sometimes you have to be careful that it doesn't get in there too much. Does that answer your question? So it's, you know, I, uh, Wallace Stevens is a, is a great poet, um, but he's not someone that I love uh, to pour over for my own work. I, I, yeah. I love his poems, but in a different way, I guess. I don't know. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, what, what you're saying makes perfect sense. And I think, you know, even looking at, uh, you know, gr- the, the major majors, looking at, you know, Shakespeare borrowed, not, I mean, didn't borrow, he, he stole frequently from what we might mm-hmm. think of as like disposable culture. Uh, and I think o- often you're totally right that a, that a not perfectly realized piece of writing can be even better to steal from than a, than a great canonical work, partly because it isn't fully realized. And so you can take it and and kind of find, you know, in, in, a, in a way, like finish the thought that was begun by somebody else. I, I'm, yeah. I'm completely with you there. And I think as a reader... I think it's colder than that. I mean, that, uh, you know, ask, ask the author of King Lair, um, <laughs> disposable culture, you know, I, I, there's something about the, the, the demands and the, and the deadlines and the practical aspect of producing work for the theater that sort of forgives a lot of sins, right? It's like, well, we got to do a show in six weeks. So yeah. I'm going to start with this play and I'm going to rewrite it. And, you know, we'll have something to, to, you know, that we can pay the bills with. So I'm sort of forgiving of that, but it's, it's, um, yeah, and we we've sort of don't think of it in those terms. Every you know, it, it, the 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 sort of antithesis to that would be, you know, as an editor, you you get submissions of poems from people who write in little copyright symbols at the bottom of oh, each right. poem, yeah, you know, yeah. and, type it. and um, I'm thinking like like what are you protecting exactly? Is someone going <laughs> to steal your poem? And if they do steal it, are they going to like make money off of it? I was just like, you right. know, it's. I, I'm sympathetic in the sense that people, you know, feel attached to their work and and don't want it to get um, ground up in the public uh, square. You particularly as a as a reader and as a writer, you know, I read for pleasure and I and I write as you said, you know, as a as a pirate basically. So I'm I'm you know when, yeah. when it comes to that, I don't worry uh, much at all about how what I enjoy might line up you know, outside of any context other than my own enjoyment and, and what I can, what I can steal and what I can, you know, learn. But I do yeah. just to put, you know, put a little pressure on the question. I think, I think it does become a slightly different matter when one is teaching or, or writing criticism. And that's where, you know, like I mean, I've written a, an essay about Joshua Beckman's poetry, which like at this point, I don't even know if I can say objectively what I think of it. I just have a certain relationship to it that makes me feel very, tenderly and I have you know stolen from him and I'm grateful for him but I don't know I don't know if it's good at this point or not and it doesn't really matter to me but I do wonder you know when one is writing criticism and when one is teaching 
not just creative, you know, I think creative writing classes, you can often teach them as a pirate, you know, but but there are also literature classes. And I wonder, I wonder how how one's soft spots or how one's peculiar the peculiarities of taste, you know, may may play a role there. I don't know. I mean, you you have yeah. so much more experience with this than I do. Well, I don't know, but I um uh, I mean, from I the one lesson that I learned uh, sort of as a, as a grad student was that I was scheduled to give an in class presentation on the poetry of Tom Gunn, who I love. And I put it together as a, you know, it must have been, it was like three to five minutes. It was supposed to just introduce the topic for, you know, further uh, discussion and look at some poems. And I sort of went through the collected poems, I guess, that I had at the time and really tried to draw out overarching themes and to kind of point out how you know, there were certain formal considerations, how he moved from a kind of Wintersian, though he probably wouldn't have admitted that, you know, sort of metrical poet to uh, someone who was, you know, admiring uh, the poems of Duncan and then writing these incredible uh, elegies for victims of AIDS. And, and so to kind of capture that, and I presented it and it was sort of like, it, it sort of fell flat. Um, the students were like, sort of like, well, that's, you know, that's sort of interesting. That's sort of like, you know, I could have read Wikipedia. I, you know, I, I quote, I quoted poems, I quoted poems, uh, in the presentation, but they weren't, and this is what I learned. All that other stuff is sort of noise that if you want to teach a poet or a poem, you have to pick the ones that tear the top of your head off. You've got to pick the ones that make you cry you've got to pick the ones that make your chest hurt and so if i had take if i had just introduced one tom gunn poem like sweet things or something one of the ones that i really love and just made the case for that they would have understood who tom gunn was they would have sort of understood what the context was and they also would have been moved by a work of art that would create a connection for them with that poet and that piece you know, potentially forever. Now, not everyone's going to like it. And some people will, you know, I'll say that I find this deeply moving and other people will be like, eh, not so much. But I, you know, I stand a much better chance of teaching Tom Gunn in that kind of second presentation than in the first one, which, you know, was clear to me, did not go over. So, you know, in terms of how poets are presented in the classroom, I sort of, I relieve myself of sort of, often of the responsibility of ranking or, you know, making a case for the centrality or the importance. I mean, sometimes it just comes out, you know, I, every time I introduce an essay by T.S. Eliot, I will say, you know, arguably the greatest, you know, poetry critic of the 20th century. I, I, you know, it's just, I, I, it's, I, I feel that that's the case. I don't want to, you know, get too, you know, too far down that road, but I'm happy to put a little signpost there to say that, this is a major leaguer. Just look at everybody who was influenced by these yeah. works and these words. Um, and the same for Eliot's poems, right? It's like you can't point to anybody who either didn't come out of it, very hard to resist Eliot and therefore, you know, wound up <laughs> being um, yeah. sort of formed by Eliot. So, you know, he was, he's one of those people that for me anyway, and so I would oh, yeah, yeah. me. But beyond that, I, I don't, you know, I, if it's, 
if I introduce it in class, it's important. And maybe that's that that poet's only good poem. Who knows? Right. Um, yeah. But it only it only takes know, that's, one. That's something that. Um, it only takes one. And that I think that was something that a lot of people misunderstood about I Ivor Winters, who I sort of have a soft spot for. Mm. Um, they see him as such a crank and, um, you know, so how could he be dismissive of Frost and Dickinson and, and Hart Crane and all these people? And the truth is, in talking to people that knew Winters and studied with Winters, is that he would teach poems by those poets. But there would be the one, right, that really did it for him. And then there would be a bunch of other ones that annoyed him for whatever reason, you know? True. So it, he wasn't the kind of slashing critic that would dismiss whole careers, whole, you know, output, but he very selective to point to the ones that, that did work for him and why. And that's very helpful as a critic because, you know, it's, he's kind of, it's very circumscribed, right? You can kind of, he's defining his sensibility through, you know his reading of these other poets and you can say, well, okay, I, I see now what your sensibility is and it's not for me. Well, fine. That's fair enough. I think we all have our anti-critics, right? The people who are like, if they hate it, I'm going to love it. So I, in the classroom, I think, you know, winters would go out and, and just say, this is trash or this is um, And then sort of self-contradictingly particular poems that were sort of, you know, that made yeah. that all sort of beside the point. And I think in terms of my teaching, I tend to leave those larger dicta sort of to the side and really look at how poems work and how the ones that really I find successful, which is to say moving, you know, how they, how they work. You know, it's funny, I've, I've been coming back in the past couple of years to a, a, an Eliot quote, which is that, poem if a poem makes you feel something then it is then it has meant something to you possibly something significant and if it has not made you feel anything it's not a poem yeah uh, and i love the fact that that's you know elliot on the one hand it is it, it's it's delivered with as a kind of slashing dictum yeah. But on the other hand, you know, Eliot, as we think of, is sort of cerebral, right? Didn't Virginia Woolf say that he he would always show up to garden parties wearing a four-piece suit? Uh, you know, he was sort of he was super buttoned down in a lot of ways. Yeah. So I love the fact that he prioritizes feeling and poems in that way. So in a, in a sense, I guess I'm you know when I'm teaching, I'm it's it's either it's either in the ballpark or it's out of the ballpark. You know, once it's in the ballpark, once it's a poem that moves me, then I don't feel I need to distinguish really um, orders of greatness. The students can do that for themselves or, you know, or the next hundred years will confirm it or deny, you know, one way or the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's not, so I don't, I don't, I don't worry about that. It doesn't give me any juice. Yeah, um, yeah, it doesn't yeah. lead me to anything. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that that's, you're right to point out that, of course, that those soft spots and, and quirks of taste work in both directions that we, we, you know, in even any great critic has blind spots in both ways, right? Liking maybe things that that are that are a little bit trivial, or or disliking things that are that are great. Uh, I mean, I yeah, I love, I, yeah, I, I love I love Hamlet, and I also love Eliot's essay on Hamlet, though I think he's wrong. Right, but, but that I mean, like, but but um, I think my favorite critics, like my favorite thinkers or philosophers in general, are those who don't necessarily teach me as much about the 
work as they do teach me a way of looking at it. They, you know, like I learn a perspective that I can then, I can then put on or, or borrow from or modify. Yeah. Or a habit of mind or yeah. uh, an aesthetic approach or yeah. Or a set of aesthetic values. Yeah, for sure. Um, you yeah, know, my blind spot, I just got in trouble on social media because uh, I knew I was doing, I, I, I was I, ready to duck, but I, um, I'm sort of late coming to classical music and, um, but it sort of had to do with moving to Baltimore, uh, because there's so much, there's a lot of vinyl in Baltimore, many, many vinyl stores and junk shops giving it away. Um, so you could get a whole box opera, you know, for 50 cents. And so once I made music on vinyl and it really became my sort of introduction and education to classical music, which I sort of had never quite gotten into. And so now I've sort of moved, you know, from, uh, uh, you know, from Bach to Beethoven and, you know, Mahler is sort of a, a, a current obsession and Stravinsky and all, you know, Satie and WC, all these people, you know, so it's just, it's so rich. And of course the operas, uh, I've got, a, you know, so much verity and uh, Strauss, you know, fantastic. But the one blind spot in all of this is Brahms. Brahms. Ah, okay, I really, okay. there, I, there are some Brahms pieces that I like, like the, um, the German Requiem, I think is very beautiful. But I, I try and try again to listen to Brahms and I get about 10 minutes into it and I'm just, I can't, I can't, I don't, I can't, I don't, I haven't figured it out. Like it just, it defies me. Like I, I feel, and I understand, like I haven't learned its language yet. I know yeah. it's my fault. But I also feel like, you know, in the divide between Brahms and Wagner, that I may be more sort of on the Wagner side of things, mm. um, if that's a real divide. But yeah, that's a big blind spot. Like they 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 call it the three Bs, right? Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms. And I, yeah. one of the I, I I amputated a B. In a way, like that that's a that's a demonstration of whatever way you've learned or you've you've adopted or found for enjoying classical music, doesn't yet admit Brahms but that means that you know that, that there is a way there is a perspective there's something yeah whatever you found in it that maybe you can you know you, you could help others find it you know and I think that's probably true yeah. with our for us as readers as well that if, if you do if you do your job as a teacher or a critic you're showing people a way to enjoy it to get into it and maybe that's yes. I mean, it's, it's limited and maybe it's imperfect so it doesn't it's going to get some things wrong uh, but it's also yeah, no, you know it's, I, it's a it's a way to 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 connect rather than just to evaluate from a distance. What I really should do is go look up and see what you know what Leonard Bernstein or somebody that I admire um, likes about Brahms. I'm sure that would help my you know my way in my appreciation of it. And that's not hard to do. I should I don't know why I didn't think of that. If I if I didn't also like if I had encountered grapefruit in a vacuum, I probably would have it would have bounced right off me, but it's because of, you know, the, the, the sensitivity and perception of Austin's introduction that I was, that I found anything in it. I think, and that's probably, yes, that's, um, no, that you're at, that's absolutely right. And that's why, you know, what I'm grateful to Austin uh, Mm -hmm. and one is grateful to critics generally because they give you a real gift when, you know, because then you feel like you, now you have a connection to uh, a work of art that you didn't have before, or at least a deeper understanding of it. And even that is, is sort of, worthy of gratitude. So yeah, yeah, I, I, critics critics are important allies, I, I, absolutely. And they can, you know, if, if the work of art having life 
is sort of a, a, a litmus test than to have someone show you where the pulse is. <laughs> you know, they're really sort of giving you the work of art for the first time almost. And uh, that's, that's important work. You have just had to do maybe the hardest version of this exercise, which is to to select and cut and reintroduce your own work through the you know in the, this new and selected that's just come out. I'm I'm curious. I know we talked a little a little bit in Baltimore about it, but I'm just curious how you uh, if you if you have a if you have a, a, a final thought on how how you apply all of these lenses and all of these tools of evaluation or of reception to your own, you know, work of, of several decades. Cause it's, I think it's a, it's a terrific collection, but it's, I, I it seems like a, a daunting <laughs> challenge. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, uh, I think I, I, I may have done a little bit of hand wringing over the selection, but, but, you know, I, I would say comparatively little, I very much, I think what we were talking about that, you know, I was able to kind of go through the earlier books of poems and because now they're, you know, it's going back uh, over time. They're a little bit, you know, they feel a little bit more distant, a little bit more, it's easier to be a little bit more objective about them. Mm -hmm. um, and if I felt like it what didn't move me in some way, uh, I cut it loose. I have not regretted either being too exclusive uh, or too inclusive. Just looking over the book since its publication, I think it was about right. I don't think that I cut anything loose that now I'm like, oh, that really should have been in there either to be representative or because it's better than I feared or, or that there's a lot of dead wood in there that I included because I'm, you know, sentimental about my own. Sure. writing or something and I, I don't think that i went too far down, down down either path so because you're sort of cutting away deadwood what's left does feel like it's some of the strongest stuff and then uh it's like a greatest hits album or something you know mm -hmm. and, and and so i have to say I'm, I'm pleased with it i'm pleased with how it came out and pleased to have the opportunity to you know to present the early work in that way and so yeah, thanks for asking. I, I'm. It's called More Things in Heaven. Yeah, it's just it's just come out. Yeah, you have. I was gonna say there, there are for for being a you know a a, a celestial title. There's there's definitely some some real darkness and, and earthy grubbiness in it. There's, in particular, I think you have a wonderful poem that is. Sure. I, I sort of love it as a response to uh, the Thought Fox. It is a. It is a. Oh. What's it? What's yeah. that one called? I forget. What's the title? Yeah, woman holding a fox. Woman holding a fox. That is. Yeah. That's a. It, fe it almost feels like a Flannery O'Connor story. To, yeah, yeah, no, it's true. Great. It is. It's like the. It's the opposite of a thought fox. It's like the flesh. <laughs> the flesh fox. That was my conversation with David Yezzy. I will have a link to his book. Again, it is more things in heaven. Uh, new and selected poems, fresh out from Measure Press. You can also find him, well, I was going to say you can find him on Twitter, but he's not really on there. He's not really doing much these days. But um, I will have a link to uh, everything. He also, he runs a he runs a, a theater in Baltimore. In addition to teaching at Hopkins, he runs, I believe it's called the Poets Theater. Yeah, the Baltimore Poets Theater, uh, where he puts up, 
some really strange and interesting work. Uh, largely, he puts up mostly, I believe it's, it's, it's mostly or exclusive. It may even be exclusively. I think it's, it's uh, uh, plays in verse, which you do not see a lot of on the stage <laughs> these days. I have heard excellent things, and I am hoping at some point to be able to go in person. In any event, uh, thanks so much to David. Again, uh, you can also find all you can find Austin's piece, uh, "My Beautiful Never Nevers," in the Los Angeles Review of Books, and I will even put in a link to Yoko Ono's uh, Bonkers Book of Poems, which smarter men than I have found uh, to be really valuable. So, uh, thank you to everybody involved. Um, including, you know what? I'm. I, let's go ahead and even. Let's go ahead and tag Yoko Ono since she is alive and kicking and apparently very active on Twitter. Maybe she will get. Uh, maybe maybe we can get her to uh, to call down a dog pile on <laughs> this podcast. Uh, thank you all for listening. Um, you can reach me as always at sleevericketts at gmail or on Twitter at where where somebody will be manning that particular wheel. And again, please do go to sleeverickets.substack.com to sign up for The Secret Show. There are three episodes on there now. I'm working on another one. It's a, I think this one will either be a, it may end up being a double episode. It's going to be quite long. And in any, in any event, it's, it's a really juicy one with Brian, all about Thomas Nagel and Randall Jarrell that I think you will really enjoy. Um, oh, also, I, I'll, I'll do another call or two for this, but since I left it at the end and probably only five of you are listening, but uh, Brian and Alice and I are planning to do a are, are planning to do a three-way Ask Me Anything episode. I don't know. I know sometimes those are done live. I think at least for this one, we're going to tape it, but please do write in with any questions and we will do our best to answer them in a uh, frank and uh, a frank, if not dignified, manner. Uh, but again, you can write me at sleerickets at gmail.com or on Twitter at sleerickets. Brian is at B. Platzer. And uh, Alice, if she ever comes back to Twitter, is at poetry underscore says. I hope to hear from you all. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. Until then.